0: opening your Bibles to 1st Thessalonians this morning uh, we will finish up uh, our exposition of 1st Thessalonians we'll look at the last six verses uh, chapter 5 verses uh, 23 through 28 that can be found on page 988 of the Pew Bibles so um, let's let's read 1st Thessalonians chapter 5 I'll begin at verse 23 the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and divinely inspired word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, that what was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of your scriptures, of your word, we might have hope. And so, Father, may May you, may the God of endurance and encouragement, grant us to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ that, Lord, together by um, hearing your word preached, by applying it to our lives, Lord, we might with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. One thing, uh, as a teacher, my students very much dislike writing essays. Thankfully, as a science teacher, I don't have to have my students write essays for my class too often. Um, but if I'm going to require my students to take time to write something, if that that means I have to take the time to grade it. So I can think of things I would rather be doing. I do have them write a lab report occasionally, but I will admit I usually have them do it in groups so that I don't have to grade so many lab reports. Um, but I still remember when I was in middle school and high school, uh, my teachers were uh, sharing with me how to write a five paragraph essay and uh, the way it's structured is this usually you take the first paragraph and you introduce the topic right you preview what the essay is about and then you spend your middle three paragraphs talking about the three main ideas of your essay and then in the last paragraph you conclude your essay you summarize the main points and the way they put it is this you tell them what you're going to tell them you tell them and then you tell them what you told them so hopefully that format worked well, because as you may have noticed, that's often the format I use for sermons as well. Uh, but in First Thessalonians here, um, Paul and Silas and Timothy have spent five chapters communicating their message, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And they now conclude their message in this last six verses by summarizing some of the main points of their message in this uh, benediction or blessing. And uh, this morning, we'll look at it in in three parts. In verses 23 and 24, we see a reiteration of sanctification. And in verses 25 through 27, we see a summary of worship. And then in the last verse, verse 28, we see a final blessing of grace. So let's begin uh, by looking at what Paul and Silas and Timothy have to say about sanctification. Sanctification. Uh, sanctification has been a major theme in first Thessalonians and Paul and Silas and Timothy's desire and prayer is that the Thessalonians would be sanctified. And in verse 23, um, we see who it is that will be sanctifying them. Uh, in fact, it is God himself. Sanctification is not a work that we can do by ourselves. And now notice uh, the way God is referred to. Uh, He's called the God of peace. Uh, he had just earlier in the chapter, in verse 13, urged the Thessalonians to be at peace among themselves, and that God is the God of peace is a reminder that true peace can only come from him. Uh, peace is an essential and fundamental part of God's character. Um, God is described in Scripture in many ways. He is the God of many things. In the Old Testament, he was many, many times the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of David, etc., but when it comes to the Lord being the God of an attribute instead of a people, there are many descriptions of his character in the Bible. He's the God of knowledge, the God of vengeance, the God of recompense. In the Psalms, he is many times called the God of our salvation. Isaiah calls him the God of justice and the God of truth. The New Testament refers to God as the God of glory, the God of endurance and encouragement, the God of hope, the God of all comfort, the God of all grace, and the God of love. But most of those are only used about one time each. But in the New Testament, one of Paul's favorite ways to refer to God is as the God of peace. It's used twice in Romans, once each in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Hebrews, uh, 2 Thessalonians, and right here in 1 Thessalonians. So eight times in total, um, God is called the God of peace. Our God is the God of peace because he gives peace. Uh, When mankind fell, and our relationship with God was broken, and we were no no longer at peace with God, our relationship as fallen sinners with our holy God was characterized not by peace but by wrath and judgment. And not only did we not have peace with God, we turned against each other as well. Uh, We don't have to read uh, much further than Genesis 3 to find Adam blaming his wife and even God himself for their failure. Um, and if we continue into Genesis 4, we see, uh, which Carl recently preached about, we see Cain killing his, his own brother out of jealousy and anger. Uh, the lack of peace does not end there. Uh, we continue to see it all through Scripture, and if we look at our own lives, we see it there as well. So because of sin and because of our estrangement from God, uh, we no longer had peace. But God did not leave us in this predicament. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says therefore since we have been justified by faith we have peace with god through our lord jesus christ so just as abraham believed god and it was credited credited to him as righteousness so we trust god in faith that our lord jesus christ died for our sins and by his sacrifice we have peace with god our sins are removed and no longer count against us and we have the righteousness of christ that brings peace with God. We are no longer subject to wrath because God's justice was completely satisfied in the death of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And we can have this peace from our God of peace. And what is it that our God of peace is doing? Uh, He is sanctifying the Thessalonians. The Greek word which is translated sanctify means uh, to make holy, that is to purify or to consecrate. Uh, we recall from uh, back in chapter 4 and verse 3 in First Thessalonians that uh, God's, Paul, says and Timothy say the will of God is your sanctification. God's will for us is that we be sanctified. And how will God's will be accomplished? Will he rely on us to muster up enough, enough strength um, to, and make enough effort to make us holy, make ourselves holy? Uh, no. Just as God did everything necessary for us to be saved, so he will be the one who does the work of sanctification in us as well. He will provide the Holy Spirit himself who will do the work to teach us, to lead us in putting to death our sins and in growing, and growing us in righteousness. Uh, every time in the New Testament the word sanctify is used, it's used in a similar way as it is here in verse 23. Uh, consistently, the one doing the sanctifying is God. And we are the recipients of the sanctification. Uh, We also notice the extent to which God will sanctify them. Uh, He says he will sanctify them completely. So there is no aspect or part of the Christian life which is left unregenerated by the work of the Holy Spirit in sanctification. And this idea is carried into the second half of verse 23 where he says your whole spirit and soul and body may be kept blameless. The fact that the three Aspects of life, all three aspects of life are included, right? Our spirits, our souls, and even our bodies emphasizes the completeness of the sanctification. The scripture speaks of the total depravity of the human condition, that every part of our lives is tainted and stained with sin. No part of us is left untouched by the fall, and therefore every aspect of us and every part of us must be brought into alignment with the holiness of God. Uh, We, or at least I, sometimes think that salvation is something uh, spiritual, dealing with the spirit and soul. And I can kind of separate it and divorce it from the practical everyday life that I live in the body. But Paul and Silas and Timothy make it clear that not only will my spirit and soul be kept blameless for the return of Christ, but my physical body must be as well. And those of us who live our daily lives may ask, you know, how is that possible when I consider my total depravity and my continued struggle with and sometimes surrender to sin and temptation? Well, first, we have to understand that sanctification is a process. It's a lifelong work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's a bit different from justification in which we are declared righteous in the sight of God because Jesus bore our sins and his righteousness is credited to us. Uh, Justification is all a work of Christ, and we play no role in it, uh, other than being the beneficiaries of it. So sanctification, though, is the work of being made holy, and it's a work that God does through the Holy Spirit. Uh, It's a work that we cooperate with, and we can do works of sanctification, not for salvation, uh, not that we work, but we work out our own salvation, um, as, as Philippians states, and apply the Holy Spirit's work to our lives. Second, we acknowledge that the actual work of sanctification is not a work that we are capable of doing ourselves. So we rely completely on the Holy Spirit through the means of grace that He's given us. Uh, we call on God in prayer, crying out for His power to overcome evil, to rid us of our sinful desires, to give us minds that are focused on Christ. Uh, we take seriously the sacraments that Christ has instituted, you know, baptism and the Lord's table. Uh, Those sacraments are used by God to provide his grace to grow in our sanctification. And we rely on the word of God, yes, in our daily devotional lives, but especially as we gather together to hear the word of God read and and expounded upon and proclaimed and preached each Sunday. Um, God uses these ordinary things, the word, sacraments, and prayer, and the church, and the fellowship of believers to sanctify us. And notice the end result, the end of verse 23, uh, at the coming Of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, The second coming of Christ has been another theme in 1 Thessalonians. Uh, Chapters 4 and 5 contain some of the most extensive teaching on the subject found anywhere in the Bible. And Paul and Silas and Timothy's teaching on the second coming of the Lord can be summarized like this Uh, Those who die before Christ comes again uh, will not be at a disadvantage, their bodies will be raised and glorified to experience the return of Christ. Uh, But those who are alive for Christ's return should be ready uh, for Christ's return at any moment. We don't know when he will come, uh, but we who are destined for salvation and eternal life must live even now as children of the light. So we embrace the sanctification of the Holy Spirit and we work toward holiness through the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can become completely perfected when Christ returns. And Paul and Silas and Timothy reassure us that uh, this, this should not be a source of alarm or worry, because in verse twenty four uh, God is faithful. He will surely do it. Uh, we are familiar with romans eight 28, 20 sorry eight twenty nine and thirty uh, For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined he also called, and those whom He called he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So God not only predestined those he called for salvation, uh, he predestined them to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Yes, in glory we will be like Christ and have a glorified body and be completely free from sin, but even now we are being conformed to the image of Christ. This is sanctification. And this is a work that we cooperate with and submit to. It's a work of God's faithfulness, In our lives, and He will surely carry it out. This means that the Holy Spirit will be at work in the lives of all believers to make them more holy. In fact, God's promise is so sure that the scripture even speaks of our sanctification in the past tense as if it's been already completed. Our sanctification is yet another aspect of the already, but not yet, of the Christian life. Uh, We think of 1 Corinthians, which reminds us that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And 1 Corinthians 6.11 says this, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So here, sanctification is considered a completed work of the Corinthian Christians, in the Corinthian Christians. Yet when we read the, le- the rest of the letter, of 1 Corinthians, we know that these Corinthian Christians were far from perfectly sanctified. Uh, the letter addresses several serious sins that were taking place. There, were, there was division. There was sexual immorality. There were lawsuits against other believers. There was idol- idolatry, among other things. Yet Paul writes that these believers were sanctified. Hebrews ten fourteen through 17 says, For by a single offering... He has perfected, That's, that is Christ. Christ has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that, that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and will write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. So Hebrews 10, 14 said that by Christ's sacrifice, he has perfected the saints. Yet that same verse speaks of those who are being sanctified. So theologians consider sanctification in two ways. There's definitive sanctification and progressive sanctification. Definitive sanctification refers to the past definitive act of God that accomplished our sanctification, namely Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection to new life. So if you are in Christ God has declared you blameless and righteous because of Christ. The problem is, as H.B. Charles Jr. states, our practice does not match our position. So the other side of it is this. Uh, Progressive sanctification is the ongoing work of God's grace through the Holy Spirit in our lives. In progressive sanctification, the Christian does have a role to play, though our actions are enabled and motivated and sustained by God's work in us, the Holy Spirit is the agent Uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism uh, defines sanctification and is referring to that progressive sanctification that is at work in our lives Uh, here's what question 34 of the Shorter Catechism says sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness As we go through the ups and downs of the Christian life, it's easy to lose hope, especially when we look to ourselves and look at ourselves. Uh, For new Christians, when we look at the depth of our sin and we spiritually feel the consequences for it, uh, we struggle to grasp the truth of God's love. You know, how could God save me when I'm such a mess? And then uh, when we begin to grasp the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of God's love for us, and we begin to mature and move from spiritual milk to meat, uh, learning to walk in the Spirit, uh, yet we remain in the fallen world, in our sinful flesh, and we struggle to put to death what is earthly in us. Uh, we often look to our idols instead of looking to God for life. And we, when we reflect on how we should fall short, uh, we often ask, how could God still love me when I've failed to live up to the standard of being a son of God? And it's at these points that we need to turn our gaze back to our Savior, Jesus Christ, and open our ears to his word. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. God will surely sanctify us completely. Uh, We remember our 2023 year verse, uh, which is printed in our bulletin and that Pastor Dean encouraged us with a year ago. Uh, It's Philippians chapter one, verse six. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Though we may be discouraged at times, though we may fall to temptation for a season, though we may sometimes feel lukewarm or even cold in our affections for Christ. Yet he will sanctify us completely, spirit and soul and body, and present us blameless before the Father on the day of Christ. God will sanctify us completely because he is faithful. So moving on from sanctification, Paul and Silas and Timothy address three marks of worship, uh, both uh, our individual worship and Worship corporately as a church. Uh, verses 25 through 27 provide three, three key elements of the worship of God, and these, these three elements are essential to the life and functioning of the church body. And these marks are first in verse um, 25 prayer, especially intercessory prayer, in verse 26, abounding love, especially in the family of Christ, and in verse 27, a reverence for and submission to the Word of God. So we'll go through each of those three marks. The first mark is prayer. In verse 25, Paul and Silas and Timothy actually asked the Thessalonian Christians to pray for them. Uh, They have prayed for the Thessalonians throughout this letter and doubtless prayed for them regularly. Uh, We might picture Paul and Silas and Timothy as evangelizing and preaching to others about how they should live out their faith while they are you know, perfect, above the storm of everyday life. Uh, But Paul himself confesses, his thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12, his messenger of Satan that harassed him. Um, He dealt with great temptation to sin, and we might also think that Paul and Silas and Timothy knew how to respond in every situation, but they constantly found themselves in situations where they did not know what to do. In 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 8, Paul speaks of a letter he wrote uh, where he regretted writing it because it caused grief, but then later came not to regret it when that grief was temporary. Uh, Dr. Leon Morris says Paul was very conscious of his own limitations and knew that his only hope was in God. And so Paul asked the Thessalonian church to pray for him. In 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 5, verse 25, no specific prayer requests are mentioned, but uh, this request for others to pray for him was not unique. At least eight or nine times in Paul's letters, we find requests or even commands uh, for the churches he ministered to to pray on his behalf. Uh, In Philippians, he he asked for opportunities that uh, he would be able to visit them again. In Romans and Philippians and 2 Thessalonians, uh, Paul asked for prayer for protection, for deliverance from evil men. Um, In Ephesians and 2 Thessalonians, he asked for uh, prayer for his preaching, that he would have boldness to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. So if the apostle Paul and Silas and Timothy needed prayer, then we should not forsake praying for our leaders, you know, for our previous pastors, for our future pastor whom God has yet to make known to us, for our pastoral search committee, for our elders, for our deacons, and uh, for our presbytery and for the (coughs) ARP church as a whole. And also notice that Paul and Silas and Timothy address the Thessalonians as brothers. Uh, There is no hierarchy of roles in the church, which we sometimes find in other religions. You know, a pastor or an elder, while worthy of respect and honor, is yet a man as you or I. So we should not elevate our leaders to a position that God has not intended for them. All, from pastors to missionaries to elders to the ordinary church member, all are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are all sinners saved by grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if God shows no partiality, neither should we. The second mark of the church is a deep love for the family of Christ. Uh, In verse 26, he instructs them to greet the brothers with a holy kiss. Uh, First notice that this is a holy kiss. It's not to be confused with anything sensual or illicit. A kiss is, or at least it was, the customary form of greeting in the Mediterranean and Middle East cultures. And today, in our culture, a similar command might be uh, give each other a warm handshake or give a friendly hug to all the brothers and sisters. Uh, Notice again um, that Paul and Silas and Timothy refer to the Thessalonians as brothers. In chapter 2, Paul and Silas and Timothy recalled how they acted as parents to these new believers. In chapter 2, verse 7, he says, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. In chapter 2, verse 11, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. So Paul and Silas and Timothy had raised these young believers from new birth uh, through infancy to childhood. And as they wrote this letter, they were continuing to work to raise them to maturity. Yet when it came to their position before the Lord, Paul and Silas and Timothy acknowledged that these people in this young church are brothers and sisters in the Lord with God himself as their father. So as we apply that to our own church and our own lives, uh, we should know that the worship of God includes our loving fellowship with our fellow believers. You know, we should, should give our warmest greetings to our brothers and sisters in Christ, and everyone who professes Christ should know that they are part of a family, and that, that way we show our love for one another is in our fellowship. It should be apparent to any visitors that we love each other deeply. Uh, it's vital for our sanctification, and it's vital for our growth and our perseverance that we embrace God's gifts to us, that we are one family in Christ. And the final mark of the church and instruction for worship is verse 27, a high regard for the word of God. He says and instructs them to read this letter to all the brothers. Paul and Silas and Timothy know that the word of God is life-giving. Recall in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, uh, they say this, And we also thank God continually for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. The Thessalonians had shown their faithfulness in receiving God's word that Paul and Silas had preached during the three weeks they were in Thessalonica with them. And Paul and Silas and Timothy's desire is that the word of God, through this letter, might continue the work of God in them. So public worship must include the public reading of the scriptures. The word must govern our conduct, and our lives and it's it's not a mere suggestion notice how it's it's written he says i put you under oath before the lord to have this letter writ, read to all the brothers this is a strong command one reason proposed by dr morris is that paul noted in chapter two of his deep desire to return to thessalonica and uh, defended his ministry there there may, there may have been some who claimed you know paul doesn't really love you see he left and he hasn't come back Remember, he was ran out of town and forced to leave, and the townspeople probably wouldn't have welcomed him back. But Paul had a strong desire to return, but Satan had hindered him. So Paul wrote this letter to serve as a substitute for his physical presence. So he puts them under oath to have this letter read to everyone so that they would know his care and concern and affections for them. Also keep in mind, this letter is one of the earliest epistles written in the New Testament. Uh, when Paul and Silas and Timothy wrote this letter, uh, the gospel accounts had not been written, written yet. First uh, Thessalonians was one of the first writings that was accepted by the church as an aposto- apostolic-inspired word of God. So verse 27, from the earliest writings in the New Testament, it sets out the public reading of God's word as a crucial aspect of worship in the life of the church. There are a couple details in this verse that inform how we should rightly handle the word of God. Uh, First, the command is to be read, that the letter be read to all the brothers, and that includes both men and women. The word of God is for all of God's people. You know, there is not a priestly class that is alone qualified to read and interpret God's word. Actually, one of the most important outcomes of the Reformation is the Christian doctrine known as the priesthood of all believers. Because of our union with Christ, Um, we all share in that priestly office and as we and we have a right and a duty to read to interpret and to apply the teachings of scripture you know we have one mediator between man and god our lord jesus christ now this is not to say we don't need pastors or elders because they are god's gift to the church but the message of scripture is clear such that even the lay person who has never been to seminary can hear and understand the word and know what it means and apply it to his life through the work of the Holy Spirit. And the key message is that we are sinners in need of a Savior. Jesus Christ is our Savior who paid our sin debt on the cross and rose again to give us the hope of our own resurrection and eternal life. And this is a message that even children can learn and understand. So church, know that the word of God is for all of us. Uh, God has given it for us, given it to us for our salvation and sanctification, and all Christians should hear God's word read and preached and should have access to it themselves. Second, um, 1 Thessalonians forbids us from just avoiding those parts of scripture that are unpopular or that rub us the wrong way. Uh, Reverend Albert Martin makes this point that Paul and Silas and Timothy's command is that this letter, the entire letter, be read to the church. Um, Let's... Go back a moment and recall what this epistle teaches. In chapter 1, it talks about election and predestination. In chapter 3, about how to endure suffering and affliction. In chapter 4, the danger of sexual immorality and how to grieve the death of of loved ones with hope. And in verses 13 and following, it talks about eschatology, which is our view of the end times and the second coming of the Lord and Judgment Day. So if this whole letter is to be read to the church then the church would receive teaching on these important doctrines, many of which we may be tempted to shy away from. Uh, This is one way the Holy Spirit uses to sanctify us. As we grow and mature, we never move beyond the essential doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. Uh, But these other doctrines take us deeper in our our understanding and knowledge of God and grow us in our love for him and in in our desire to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. I have many students that when the topic of church comes up, I ask them, you know, did you go to church this weekend? Sometimes they'll say, yeah. And when I ask uh, what church they go to, they say, oh, well, I just read my Bible verse of the day or um, I just said my prayers. And I have to inform them that, you know, there's much more to church than just reading the Bible or saying your prayers. It's actually God's blessing to us to put us in a community where we can be together, where we can encourage one another, Uh, Hearing the word of God preached, where we can pray together and observe the sacraments. And in the world today, uh, we find opinions that are not much different. There are many who claim to be Christians, who claim to know Jesus, but who reject the bride of Christ, the church. There are many who think they're okay, just just them and God, Lone Ranger Christians. Um, Our spiritual life is, you know, a personal thing, right? We don't need anyone else to be involved. But brothers and sisters, uh, we do need each other. I need to pray for others, and I need others to pray for me. I need to show love to my Christian family, and I need others' love as well. And I need truth from God read to me and preached to me every Lord's day. So, my brethren, let's not forsake meeting together, but uh, let's also invite that reclusive Christian to church. So having discussed sanctification and worship, uh, we move on to the final verse of 1 Thessalonians, uh, God, God's blessing of grace. Uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy uh, pronounce this blessing upon the Thessalonians. Verse 28, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So having prayed or having asked for prayer from the people, Paul and Silas and Timothy now pray for the people. We we recall the very beginning of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 1, uh, where he says, grace to you and peace. And this is a pattern in most epistles. They begin and end with blessings of grace. Uh, Reverend James Denny puts it this way. Whatever God has to say to us in all the New Testament letters where there are things that search the heart and make it quake, they all begin and end with grace. God's grace is throughout his word from beginning to end. Uh, We're all familiar with the definition of grace, you know, undeserved favor. And that's a good definition. Uh, God's grace to us in Christ is our salvation. Uh, Romans 3 and 24 says we are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So, grace is a quality of God that inclines Him to give gifts to undeserving sinners, to redeem them from slavery to sin. But God's grace is big, it goes even further than that. Consider 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So grace is also God's power or influence for obedience. God's grace can work in us to make us more like Christ. And yes, God's grace saves us, uh, but it also produces a real and practical outcome in people's lives. Alistair Begg says regarding this last verse, verse 28, that grace is a resource through which we will accomplish the previous three verses. And I'll take it a step further. I'll submit to you that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is the resource by which we will accomplish all of the admonitions and commands we've encountered in First Thessalonians. So God's grace is what causes us to walk in a manner worthy of God. God's grace enables us to follow Christ and to stand firm in the Lord. God's grace allows us to endure suffering and temptation and to live out the truth of our redemption. God's grace is what causes our love for one another another to abound and for one another and for all. God's grace is what establishes our hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. God's grace empowers us to be sanctified, to abstain from sexual immorality, to practice self-control, to forsake the passion of lust, and to treat our brothers in Christ with love God's grace is what causes us to live quiet lives, to to mind our own affairs, and to work with our hands, living properly before outsiders. God's grace compels us to encourage one another, to build one another up, and to admonish one another against idleness and to patiently bear with the weak. God's gracious places pastors and elders in our churches and calls us to love and esteem them highly. God's grace is what establishes us to seek to do good to one another rather than repaying evil for evil. God's grace prevents us from quenching the spirit and despising prophecies. And God's grace causes us to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, and to give thanks in all circumstances. Uh, Let me conclude with uh, a quote from Reverend Reverend James Denny on grace. He says, all that God has been to man in Jesus Christ is summed up in grace. All his gentleness and beauty, all his tenderness and all his patience, all his holy passion of his love is gathered up in grace. What more could one soul wish for another than that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ should be with it? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. Lord, we pray that our wills that our desires might be to be sanctified, that it would be aligned with your will for us, which is our sanctification. Lord, Uh, We desire, Lord, to worship you in spirit and truth, to be obedient to all that you've commanded. Father, we thank you for your grace in Christ, which not only paid for our sins, but uh, your grace that enables us to be your children as the family of God. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.